Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our sixth episode of Season 2 for China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. For this episode, we are going to be focusing on both China's and also, by design, Russia's authoritarian influence and foreign interference operations. In fact, according to the Ronald Reagan Institute poll that was just released and my colleague just brought to my attention, most Americans now view China, not Russia, as the primary threat facing America. This poll was literally just released, and so I think this makes our episode today very timely. Um, This is a fascinating subject and one that touches on broader themes of authoritarianism, like the ways that authoritarians seek to undermine democracies and other free and open, one might even say transparent, systems of government. The irony is not lost on me that the least transparent governments are often the ones running the most pervasive foreign interference operations. And to help us understand this better, I'm delighted to bring in a new co-host for today. She is Heritage Senior Fellow for Public Diplomacy, Hella Dale. Hella's current work focuses on the U.S. government's institutions and programs for strategic outreach to the public of foreign countries. Prior to joining Heritage, Hella's career started in journalism, where she worked with both domestic and foreign publications. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hella. Hey, Olivia. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Awesome. So, Hella, can you help us understand authoritarian interference and really why we should be concerned about it? And if you could also touch more specifically on why we need a better understanding of the Chinese government's interference efforts in particular. Yes, of course. Um, The purpose of authoritarian influence um, is twofold. Uh, On the one hand, these countries seek to undermine our own democratic institutions here in the U.S. and in the West and weaken our social structures. Based on our last two presidential elections and their aftermath, our foreign enemies have certainly had some success in shaking the faith of Americans in our own political institutions. Secondly, authoritarian states seek to control their own image globally and extend their international reach. For Russia, the big prize is control of Ukraine. For China, important issues to target with influence operations, squashing Hong Kong's democracy, undermining Taiwan's independence, and the persecution of the Uyghurs. In each instance, China pressures foreign nations to accept its policies and intervenes in multilateral institutions like the United Nations to protect and advance its interests. Mm, I think that's such an interesting overview. And also, each of the issues that you touched on in China's case, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, the Uyghurs, all of those are seen as very internal issues and issues that are like right at the core of China's primary interests, maintaining their stability, maintaining their sovereignty. So it's really helpful to hear that. Thank you, Hella. Yeah. It's now my pleasure to bring in our guest, Etienne Sula. 
Etienne is a research analyst with the Alliance for Securing Democracy based in Brussels, Belgium. His research focuses on China's growing political and economic assertiveness in the transatlantic space. He also spearheaded the expansion of the ASD's authoritarian interference tracker, which we're going to be covering a bit today. Um, he holds a dual master's degree in international affairs from American University and the Université Libre de Brussels, as well as a law degree from the University of Nottingham. Etienne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Olivia, and uh, hello, hello. Hi. Um, so to kick things off, can you share a little bit about the Alliance for Securing Democracy? Absolutely. So um, the program, which is hosted at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, was formed in 2017 to push back against foreign autocratic interference, mainly coming from Russia and China, but also uh, Iran. Uh, so this foreign autocratic interference in democracies in Europe and North America. So by interference, we kind of mean these activities that fall below the threshold of uh, something that would trigger, you know, an armed response or a strong response from democracies, but still actions that have a clear destabilizing effect on our societies and institutions. So the main projects that we're currently focused on at uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy are in identifying foreign autocratic states' uh, information manipulations and on monitoring autocratic interference uh, in democratic elections. Um, so we've just concluded a project monitoring the German federal elections. Uh, I encourage you to check out the dashboard on our website. And we're just about to launch a similar project monitoring the elections in France uh, that will uh, officially be starting in January. And also beyond election monitoring, I just want to put in a quick word about the work we do on malign finance. As my colleague Josh Rudolph published a report this fall on the enablers of autocratic malign finance activity in the West. And uh, I think that's a very, very unappreciated avenue for autocratic interference in democracies. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah, thank you for giving us that broader overview of your work and uh, really precisely defining foreign interference operations. Um, this episode, we are focusing on the authoritarian interference tracker. So can you share with us the broad overview, uh, just a broad overview of the project? And you know, what does this project track? And are there any special methodologies that you're using in order to collect this data? So the authoritarian interference tracker is essentially an online database cataloging instances of Russian and Chinese interference in European and North American democracies. It's publicly available, easy to navigate, uh, to get a quick sense of authoritarian activities in our democracies. Again, I encourage everyone listening to this to go check the tool on our website and play around with it. All the cases uh, we have listed in that tool have been identified through open source research. We are essentially an aggregator of knowledge that already exists in internet government uh, documents, in think tank reports, in news stories, uh, and yeah. The main challenge when collecting all this data is really the geographical scope of our research. It covers over 40 countries that speak over 30 languages, and many of the most interesting uh, instances of foreign authoritarian interference 
are not broadly relayed in the international press. So you really have to go into you know, local, uh, local Slovakian press coverage or local Romanian press coverage if you want to get to the most interesting examples of interference. On your interference tracker, you have uh, five different forms of interference um, identified. And I was wondering if you, if you would uh, give us an overview of those five and, and some of the reasons for how you decided to categorize influence in that way. Absolutely. So the, I'll just go through the five tools and make a, a few comments on each of them. So the first tool we have is kind of historically where our work started and it's information manipulation. It's, it covers a lot of things that you will hear uh, called in different ways mm -hmm. in the press, you know, disinformation, fake news, information operations. Um, the reason why we chose the term information manipulation to cover this kind of dissemination of false information uh, by bad intention, badly intentioned uh, authoritarian actors is that we wanted to also cover the cases, especially concerning China, where it's not so much about spreading this or that piece of information, even in a coordinated manner, but it's more about kind of shaping the entire information ecosystem. For instance, through the control of certain apps or of certain sections of the IT infrastructure, where it's not so much about which information gets put in, and it's more about really controlling the entire system in such a way that the information you don't like just never appears. Um, so information manipulation is our first tool, and it's still the one we do a lot of work on. The second tool we have is cyber operations. I think that's fairly straightforward. I will just add a small comment here that what's a bit difficult in cyber operations is the problem of attribution where we're really focused on authoritarian states. So we're not so much interested in what, you know, random criminals or people do on their own initiative. And in that sense, sometimes it's difficult because you can tell that this attack came from a server in China or in Russia, but it's not immediately apparent that the attack was commandeered or like ordered by some government institution. So that was the second tool, cyber operations. The third tool we monitor is malign finance, and that's the funding of political parties, candidates, campaigns, well-connected elites through non-transparent structures designed to obfuscate ties to a nation state or its proxies. You have had very prominent examples concerning Russia in Europe. So for instance, uh, a Russian bank financed the camp, well, partly financed the campaign of Marine Le Pen, a far-right politician in the last French presidential election. More recently, you've had examples in Italy where uh, an advisor of the far-right politician, Matteo Salvini, was uh, caught by Italian media in Moscow trying to negotiate getting money out of a Russian gas deal. So that was the third tool, malign finance. The fourth tool is civil society subversion, and that kind of covers pressures on or co-option of civil society participants, such as diasporas, academia, or think tank, in a way to make them conducive or more pliable to um, foreign authoritarian states' interests. 
This is very important in the case of China, since China has what you could call an obsession with certain segments of its diaspora. So Tibetans, Uyghurs, uh, now more recently you've had Hong Kong democracy activists that are kind of hounded by the Chinese Communist Party, even as they go outside of China. And in the case of China, this also covers what's known as United Front activities. So this kind of um, broad network, kind of loose network, where China tries to uh, co-opt business interests, um, cultural centers, many different kinds of organizations, again, to promote its interests in a, in a non-obvious, in a covert way. So the, the fifth and final tool we monitor is economic coercion, and that's, broadly speaking, the use of economic means to achieve political uh, or geopolitical objectives. In the case of China, it can be a little bit difficult to delimitate where influence stops and where interference begins. We, so we have the authoritarian interference tracker. We are really focusing on those cases where there is something akin to a smoking gun. What China does a lot is that you know, it sets up the board in a certain way, and by the time you're checkmated, it's too late. We, it's difficult, basically, to catalog each instance of China moving upon. So we are kind of limited for now to situations where there's a check or a checkmate situation. So that's economic coercion. And so these are the five tools. That's a really helpful overview. And also for our listeners, we are going to include a link to the authoritarian interference tracker. And one of the things that's really great about it is that when you click into the tracker, you can actually see each of these five categories broken down according to each country. And so you can really zoom in on each of these instances and understand what was going on better. So thank you for that overview. That was really helpful. Um, now I'm going to ask you to step back even further and, and ask you what trends, if at all, does the data show on, on the Chinese government's interference efforts? So that's a quite tricky questions because we have so many data points it's always a little difficult to extract you know broad generalizations out of that what i will say that uh, was quite obvious when we finished uh, expanding the tracker from only russia to also include china cases was that uh, europe is not as far removed from chinese interference as it thought mm. um, there were a lot of cases in europe and so there are some countries where everyone knows there's a big Chinese presence, like Serbia or Hungary, but even countries that are not as immediately, um, that everyone wouldn't think of as immediately, were also concerned. Um, another trend that I think is very apparent from uh, China, from anyone watching China, is uh, that Chinese information manipulation has changed style you know, with the so-called event of uh, wolf warrior diplomacy, they, and especially since uh, COVID hit, Chinese diplomacy has become much more assertive, um, almost uh, aggressive, actually, in many instances, and much less shy to dive into disinformation and spreading false information and kind of overt lies, whereas it used mm -hmm. to be more... Um, 
restrained, especially compared to its Russian counterparts. Um, would you would you be able to to further uh, elaborate a little bit on that comparison in terms of the tactics and the tools that are used relatively by Russia and China? Um, is there a significant difference in their tactics and their goals? So it's not necessarily shown uh, by data. This is more of me giving a qualitative assessment. <laughs> When it comes to information manipulation, it seems that China is still learning in a way. Um, in particular, uh, in Europe, for like, you know, you have smaller countries that speak languages that are not very spoken outside of their borders. Russia really has a granular understanding of the domestic political context. I remember a few years ago, there was a Swedish diplomat who was uh, half jokingly, but half honestly saying that Russian state media sometimes seemed better informed about what was happening in small cities in Sweden than the government was, because they have journalists, you know, in every single small city. Uh, and you can see that from the way they cover uh, domestic news. They're always kind of at the at the tip of the spear of what's happening in the country whereas china is a bit more clumsy uh, it's propaganda still a bit communist rigid style you know um, trying to just copy and paste what works internally in china and put it outside and it doesn't resonate with a global audience as well that is not as interested in chinese politics or as familiar with the codes and the way in which um, Chinese propaganda is usually presented. Yeah, and just to add here, um, I've been doing a little bit of work on digital authoritarianism, and obviously Russia and China feature prominently mm -hmm. in anything related to that. One of the things that was so fascinating to me when I was first getting into this work is that technologically, it seems like China is much more advanced than Russia is, at least in the digital realm. But they're applying those same um, you know, principles of authoritarianism and even have some shared goals in their objectives for why they engage in digital authoritarianism and why they engage in foreign interference in the digital sphere. Um, so I always find it really fascinating to highlight those differences um, because I think sometimes it can be easy to just assume that if you're an authoritarian actor, you're acting in a monolithic way. And I don't think that's always the case. So that was really helpful to hear your perspectives on that, Etienne. I, I noticed uh, from looking at your website that um, some of the graphics show that Russia has almost double the amount of instances of interference um, compa as compared to China. And Etienne, would you say that it's because Russia has been in this business longer and has that more granular understanding or... Or why is it that Russia does seem to be more active than China? So, yeah, there's definitely a historical component to it. I think it's also about the geographical selection we've made. I think if our tool were to include Asia, for instance, suddenly China, like cases <laughs> involving China, would shoot sure. up. Uh, it's clear that Russia is far more active and cares more about Europe than China does. I mean, just Ukraine alone is almost 10% of all the Russia cases we have. So, um, yeah, China is not nearly as involved in that part of the world. Um, there's also, but that's maybe more of a personal uh, interpretation, I think Russia is a bit more reckless, doesn't care 
as much about getting caught or disliked. China still exerts a lot of influence through more traditional channels like diplomacy that we don't include under interference, you know, since we're interested in more covert or like malign forms of uh, spreading influence. And, but this may be changing actually. Uh, I know there's like a French report that came out a few weeks ago where they talk about China having a Machiavellian moment where it's uh, less concerned about being loved and just cares about being feared or respected. So, yeah. That's fascinating. Also, just a, a random question here, but do you all have plans to expand the tracker to include regions beyond Europe? So we, it, it has been discussed. Um, we haven't yet, you know, formally operationalized that. There are challenges because the part, the region we were looking at uh, foremost was Africa. Mm. Uh, you have so many more countries than in Europe. And the language problem is the same, if not even more acute than in Europe. So we had some logistical bumps, but yeah, it's something we are looking into. Well, maybe this would be a good moment to <clears throat> to add uh, that the Heritage Foundation is actually doing a major project on collecting data on influence, especially Chinese influence in Africa. Yeah, our colleague Josh Maservi is pulling that together, and it, I think, has been quite the feat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> he has all my sympathy. Yes. <laughs> um, so, Etienne, your tracker monitors Russia and China, um, and, and that's obviously... Um, very appropriate since they're the most aggressive authoritarians. Uh, but have their tactics influenced other authoritarian regimes? Um, do we see uh, do we see their influence spreading um, maybe in the Middle East, for instance? So I think it's. I, I'd like to go back to a point that uh, Olivia made about this kind of narrative alignment you can sometimes see between uh, Russia and China. So you can see the same thing happening with Iran, for instance, where this this kind of narrative recycling, you know, where Iran will take um, yeah, narratives or stories that have been pushed by Russian or Chinese propaganda and kind of make them its own. But I don't know to what extent it's just a kind of spontaneous convergence of interests versus, you know, them actively learning from each other beyond Iran and other actors, what's very clear is that Russia and China are empowering internal anti-democratic forces. So as I mentioned, Russia has financed far-right uh, or even separatist movements in Europe. You can see that China is helping someone like Viktor Orban solidify his grasp on power um, by, you know, kicking out the Central European University, replacing it with a Chinese university in Budapest. And then also something Olivia mentioned, which is the specter of techno-authoritarianism, where you have countries, and I think the, your colleague Josh will find that even more acutely in <laughs> Africa, but you have governments that are kind of using Chinese technology and Chinese tools of control to yeah, suppress democratic forces within their own borders. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, can you highlight some of the unique challenges that are at play when you're collecting data on China or some of the Chinese government's practices? I know your methodology kind of does provide for some ways around this, but are there any challenges that you think differ from traditional data collection? 
So the major hurdles I mentioned in the context of cyber operations, this problem with attribution, you know, what's directly attributable to the Russian or Chinese state versus what's criminals or just spontaneous uh, patriotic hackers who decide to hack something. Um, so that's one difficulty we have. Something that is also difficult in the context of economic coercion, and it's this differentiation between kind of when the economic coercion has taken place versus when they're just laying the groundwork for it. So an example I can give you is in Greenland, China has been making quite significant investments in uh, rare earth uh, mines. Rare earth are a critical component for electronics. A very high percentage, I don't have the exact number, but I think it's something around 80% of the world's rare earth are uh, uh, extracted and processed in China. And so by investing in rare earth uh, production in Greenland, China is both, you know, getting some just economic advantage, which is you can't fault them for doing, but then there's also the potential for them kind of reinforcing their monopoly in an industry that is very critical to, you know, components we need in like the most advanced technology we use every day. What an interesting example there. Um, that was really illustrative of some of the broader trends um, of Chinese behavior. I am curious, have you all received any reaction or responses from the Chinese government to the ASD's research and findings? I'm not famous yet. I can still <laughs> travel to China. I have had one like particularly uh, vitriolic Chinese state reporter who, you know, I don't know if you remember, he insulted an American senator not long ago um, on Twitter. And so he treated me and my colleague uh, of China haters because we were commenting on his, um, his insults. But uh, there's, for instance, a German think tank called Merix, and they got put on a sanctions list by the right. Chinese government, which <laughs> ASD, unfortunately, has not yet had the privilege of having. So. <laughs> I know. I feel like uh, when, when folks get sanctioned by the Chinese government, they wear it as a badge of honor. <laughs> means yeah. they're doing good work. Yeah, that's so true. Um, so many of our listeners are a part of the policymaking community. What areas of China's interference efforts or influence operations are kind of ripe for additional research? So as I mentioned earlier, I think the economic coercion piece is very important, particularly this idea of setting up the pawns or laying the groundwork. So I think there needs to be, which honestly in the US, it's not too bad because you have uh, CFIUS, for instance, this investment screening mechanism that already takes on board national security considerations. So you're less um, blind to it than European countries are. But I still think more needs to be done on this kind of preventative analysis and of trying to preempt Chinese takeover of critical sectors of the global economy. Another sector that should get more attention but is perhaps even more sensitive is the malign finance side of it. So to figure out who in the political world or in the think tank world uh, is being, let's say, incentivized by Chinese money to orient their work, their statements in one way or the other. 
it's a bit of a Pandora's box because, you know, no one wants to look into it too much, uh, even in very well-established democracies. But I do think that it's an area that really deserves more investigation and, yeah, a bit of intellectual honesty on the part of our countries and systems. Yeah, I'm so glad that you raised the point about differences in perception on China between the U.S. and Europe. Um, my colleagues and I were actually just in Europe, in Brussels, in London, and in Warsaw, and um, it was really fascinating to see how almost, you know, out of the blue during the pandemic, I feel like there are a lot of European countries that are waking up to a lot of China's malign influence. Um, but I think it's going to take some time to get to where we're at here in the U.S. So uh, I will be watching that with bated breath, like I'm sure many of your European counterparts are. Um, I have a last question here. I would love to hear from you what actions um, you would like to see in response to the findings of your report. Are there some like tangible steps that policymakers can take to make the best use of your data? So um, again, I'm going to go back to what you were mentioning about this kind of differences between Europe and North America. I think in Europe, it's really still about raising awareness. Things are trending in a good direction. So, for instance, the European Parliament has had a special committee on foreign interference, and they've been looking into all these issues for the past, for over a year now. And the report they've just put out is saying all the right things. Uh, they're really waking up to this danger from both Russia and China. But I would still say it's kind of an enlightened minority in the, you know, broad, uh, in the broader picture. Um, also trending in the right direction is the new German coalition. Uh, they, in the coalition agreement, you have some quiet, uh, assertive vocabulary uh, for concerning China. Um, but for now, it's only a kind of statement of intention. We have to see if the actions will follow through. And it's not 100% clear that all the parties in the German coalition are on the same page when it comes to China. Then. For things that concern both Europe and North America, something that I think is very important is to do more to protect diasporas. So Tibetans, Uyghurs, now the Hong Kong democracy activists that are living in our countries, that in many cases are citizens of our countries, should not be uh, victimized by the Chinese Communist Party. I think when they receive, and we have a lot of cases in the tracker of uh, Uyghurs, for instance, receiving phone calls from the embassy, from the Chinese embassy, or from family members still in China, telling them that maybe they should not be so vocal on this or that issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like our countries are doing enough to defend these people and to like help them, you know, protect their freedom of speech and their political rights. Um, Something that also both Europe and North America could do better is to train more specialists, um, to get more, you know, Mandarin speakers. Uh, I say this, my own Mandarin is terrible. So. <laughs> but you see that this training of expertise is something that China is sensitive about. Since uh, I go back to that sanctioning of Merics, Merics is probably one of the best think tanks in Europe when it comes to China issues. And they were basically just sanctioned because they were doing good work that was providing accurate information to European decision makers. Um, and then the last thing that is perhaps the most sensitive of all is that both Europe and North America need to address the business dependence on the Chinese market. 
there was a European MEP, the head of this special committee that I mentioned earlier, who was in Axios recently kind of denouncing the German auto industry, saying that German car industrials are behaving as lobbyists for the Chinese government. I think the situation can be comparable in some industries in the US. I know, for instance, that the Chinese Communist Party propaganda loves to quote, you know, Elon Musk when he's waxing lyrical about how China is doing this so well or that so well. So there needs to be an effort in our countries to kind of weed off this dependence we have on the Chinese market so that we can more freely stand up for our democracies. Well, all of those recommendations are great notes to end on. Um, Etienne, you are doing such incredibly important work, um, both for educating European partners, but also for people all across the globe to better understand the authoritarian influence of both China and Russia. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today and, and for all of your incredible work. This was great. Thank you for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. And once again, thank you so much, Hella, for, for co-hosting today. It's so fun to have you as a first-timer to the podcast. <laughs> thank you, Olivia. I enjoyed every moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I hope that our listeners really enjoyed learning more about um, the authoritarian activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, as I mentioned, Etienne is just doing such important work in order to highlight um, the lack of transparency on the part of the CCP and also to help us to better understand the tactics and the tools that the Chinese government um, is using. Um, for those who are eager to learn more, please check out our China Transparency Project website and in particular our first inaugural 2021 China Transparency Report. Um, of course, as always, I will include a link to the website and to the report in the show notes. And of course, we will also link um, to the work that uh, we discussed today. The website and the report hopefully will serve as useful resources to our listeners who are wanting to just learn more about the data-driven research that's being done by friends of ours all all across the globe. Thanks once again to our listeners for tuning in to China Uncovered. It's a podcast that's dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In two weeks from now, we'll bring you our season finale, where we will get an exclusive sneak peek into Heritage's China in Africa transparency database. We've actually touched on that a bit here today, um, so maybe we've even given you an, an additional layer of sneak peek. Um, but please be sure to tune in for that final episode. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We look forward to hearing from you and also to uh, having you tune in next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.